Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, your favourite weekly podcast that covers all things racing in the World Championships on two wheels. My name is Neil Morrison. I'm delighted to say that we have a slightly reduced uh, attendance. Well, I'm not delighted about that, but I'm delighted about the man that is joining me. We've only got one guest this week on the Paddock Pass podcast, and that is Mr. Steve English. Hello, Steve. Yeah, it's incredibly disappointing that we don't have David Emmett here for some reason. He decided that his wedding anniversary was more important than a podcast. Such lack of commitment, Neil. It just it just saddens me to my core. Yeah, the cheek of David. Who does he think he is? Huh? Who does he think he is taking us for mugs? Anyway, Steve, uh, we've got uh, plenty to talk about. And as the temperature in this uh, 2020 summer is going up, the humidity is rising, uh, the time to our first racing of the season is gradually coming down. We're just, uh, well, under a week away from uh, the first MotoGP round of 2020. Uh, we're, what, three weeks away from the first World Superbike race? And uh, I'm talking to you. Uh, you are actually uh, somewhere in Montmelo over for the World Superbike test this week as well, Steve. So uh, it must be getting pretty close or feeling like it's all getting pretty close for you at the moment. Yeah, it really is. And like you mentioned there about it heating up and I've certainly felt that coming from Ireland to the middle of the Barcelona summer. It's uh, absolutely boiling, but uh, it's great to be back at a racetrack. It's great to see bikes back on track. It's great to know that you're getting closer and closer to a race and comeback. And that's what we're going to have over the next week. Well, obviously next week, our show is going to be previewing the first MotoGP race of the year. And that's really exciting for everyone to be able to get that back on track. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, well close to four months that we've been without uh, any form of Grand Prix racing. So uh, yeah, it'll be really welcome to see those guys getting back into the action in Jerez. We have a pretty action-packed show because we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the riders' market because there's been some interesting movements, gossip, rumor, and intrigue in the past week since we were last with you. Uh, we're going to also talk a little bit about the Superbike test uh, that Steve is at at the moment because he was at uh, the Circuit of Barcelona today. Steve, I hope you've got your uh, your espresso ready to keep you going. Yeah, well, uh, I'll be quite honest, Neil. I've had absolutely no call for coffee for the last four months. And then suddenly today I've had about six cups. So uh, I'm, I'm G'd up and ready to go. <laughs> and just in terms of you coming, coming over to Spain, Steve, I mean, uh, some of the people that'll be listening to our podcast, uh, won't be traveling this summer or, or won't have the opportunity or won't have had the opportunity to travel in recent months. Uh, what was the situation like for you in terms of coming out here, getting tested, all that kind of thing? Well, it was really easy actually and and I was properly nervous before coming I, I didn't know what to expect I didn't know what it would be like at the airport I didn't know what it would be like on a plane I didn't know what to expect whenever I landed and then suddenly I arrive at Dublin airport I check in my bag within about two minutes I get through security in another two minutes and then I'm down at the gate just waiting for my flight and get on the flight everything ran really smoothly you had to wear a mask there was a spare seat between me and the guy next to me and land into Barcelona and uh, fill in the forms to be able to state where you're going to be, get a temperature check, pick your bag up, pick your rental car up. And I'd say the total time I had from whenever I landed to getting into my rental car was about 15 minutes. So it's arguably way more efficient than any of us have ever seen at an airport. You're, everything's just uh, running to a T. So it ended up that all my fears were very much unfounded. But you also have to be realistic and say that it's a good thing that you have that bit of anxiety before anything like this because you know it, it is a very serious issue and you need to make sure that 
you're still doing all the right things. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And this is uh, this is your job essentially on the line. If you've, you know, you don't follow these procedures, that essentially means you don't get to go to Hareth uh, and uh, do your job for the first round of the year. So there's a lot riding on it. Yeah, exactly. And and it's the same for everyone. And when you talk to riders and teams, they all say the same thing. We're all racers in the paddock. It doesn't matter what your job is. That's your passion. And everyone wants to make sure that they're able to get through everything as smoothly as possible to make sure that we're able to go back racing because none of us want to get a real job ever again. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and delay that for uh, at least another couple of months, eh, Steve? Um, but yes, good to hear that you're uh, you're out in Spain and you made it out um, relatively drama free. Um, since we last spoke, Steve, there's been uh, a number of uh, a number of stories, a number of rumours doing the rounds about the MotoGP riders market. We thought we had it pretty much all covered. Uh, last week, um, we had uh, discussed in some detail uh, Davizioso's contract negotiations with Ducati, uh, with uh, Valentino Rossi's negotiations with Yamaha. We were expecting that to that move to Petronas SRT to be announced uh, sometime at the first Grand Prix, first MotoGP race of the year. Um, but what we didn't really talk about was uh, some of the issues and some of the drama going on around Honda. Uh, now, it seems to be, a couple of us have heard uh, from, well, let's say pretty good sources that uh, Alex Marquez obviously is out of Repsol Honda next year. He'll be going to LCR and we had been kind of wondering what the situation was going to be at LCR and it looks to some surprise as though it's Cal Crutchlow that is going to be leaving Honda at the end of 2020. And uh, well, this I think is uh, taking us all by surprise. Well, there's a part of you that thinks Honda should get rid of Nakagami. If it's performance related, you go and you say, well, obviously Cal gives you a much better chance of being able to win the odd Grand Prix, finish on the podium. So he's the, the rider you'd keep. But then when you look at it as well, Honda are never going to get rid of a Japanese rider unless they've got another one to come through. And right now there's no one really that you could immediately put onto a MotoGP bike that will do a better job than Nakagami. So maybe in another year or two years, that op- opportunity is presented. So for Crutchlow, he just kind of gets shoehorned out. And it's unfortunate because he's basically been the second best Honda rider over the last few years. So it's a big disappointment for him to lose out in that seat. And then it's a big disappointment for MotoGP as well, because the British market's a big market. You want to make sure that you've got a British rider that can get good results. And uh, suddenly... If Cal's out of the LCR seat, it then becomes harder and harder to do that. And it gets then harder and harder to also sell the product in the UK. So it's absolutely imperative that you're able to keep Crutch, though, on a good bike for next year. Yeah. Do you think uh, Cal has got a bit of a raw deal uh, in this whole affair? Does he really deserve to be shown the door out of LCR Honda? No, not at all. If you look at, as I said, his performances over the last few years, he's the only Honda rider that's been able to really get anything consistently out of that bike now you could look at it and say that honda's got mark marquez so it doesn't really matter too much about that and if they're able to bring paul in for next year keep alex marquez on a bike you know cal then becomes expendable but it doesn't mean that it's not a a, not a, a challenge to that they should have tried to find a solution to keep him because he does have that performance it's a shame for cal it's i think it's a shame for lcr as well yeah, yeah. Lucio Cecchinello has always uh, spoken very highly of uh, of Cal and uh, even earlier in the lockdown, I think uh, he was going on the record saying that uh, contract negotiations with Cal were going pretty well. Um, but uh, but then 
Paulus Bargaro's arrival has uh, seemed to cause, well, basically just a, something there that, uh, you know, there's, there can't be three riders in LCR Honda and Honda obviously can't just throw Alex Marquez to the side. They need to find a place for him somewhere within their MotoGP ranks. And uh, yeah, Cal seems to be the one that um, has basically got the, the short straw. Yeah, the short straw for him. And I think it's also worth noting that if it came down to a straight up choice between Cal and Paulus Bagaro for a Honda seat, Honda have made the right decision. Paul is a great rider. He could do a really good job with that bike and he gives them the potential to grow as well. Whereas you know exactly what results you're going to get from Cal. And I think that the unfortunate thing for Cal is that because they've brought Paul in, suddenly he can fall down that totem pole that little bit more. I think if it wasn't a rider like Paul that they were trying to bring in, Cal's very much secure at Honda. Yeah, yeah. You also think back to last year and um, Cal obviously uh, made a minor heroic uh, recovery coming back from injury at the end of 2018 uh, after that uh, serious ankle injury that he sustained at Phillip Island. And uh, he spoke quite a lot last year about um, some of the difficulties, the physical difficulties that that injury was still giving him in 2019, even though he had been racing from the start of the year. Um, And there was a, a bit in the middle of 2019 when he was talking about retirement being at the forefront of his mind and he was thinking that you know perhaps uh, 2020 would be his final year and you wonder whether those kind of comments maybe made a bit of an impact in HRC's decision as well Steve because essentially Honda know that Cal isn't going to be around forever and if he does sign a, an extension uh, it would be one year two years max and then he's out I mean he is by his own admission, coming towards uh, the end of his career. This is the twilight of his career. Uh, whereas someone like Paulus Bargaro has maybe five, six years left ahead of him. Alex Marquez is only just beginning his MotoGP career. Taki Nakagami's in his mid to, to late 20s, but has only two years of MotoGP experience under his belt. Perhaps Cal making those retirement comments last year also um, played into Honda's thinking. Yeah, quite possible. And I think it's, Worth noting, you mentioned his injuries. I think it's worth noting that uh, we all do it. I, I, like everyone does it, whether it's fans, whether it's journalists, whether it's teams, whether it's riders. We all underestimate just how long it can take to get over an injury. Just because a rider's back on their bike doesn't mean that they're fit. And you mentioned how long it took Cal to feel, or, or how long he was still feeling the ill effects of his injury. A good example of that, again, looking at the World Superbike paddock, is Leon Camier. Camier has been injured for the best part of two seasons now. And you always think that an injury is gone when a rider is able to get back onto the bike. And it's then really shocking whenever, like what has happened to Camier with that relapse on a shoulder injury. You expect riders to be fully fit within, you know, a matter of months from serious injuries. Whereas when you look at footballers, when they suffer a serious injury, that can be their season finished. And you don't expect them to come back until next year. Whereas we just expect riders to come back and be able to perform at their best. And it's it's an unrealistic expectation, but you know, it is something that seems to be ingrained within the paddock. And I think Cal's performances last year, especially whenever they're viewed with his injury, you know, they were very strong performances. I think the one th- the one thing that I sort of see weighing up in, in this decision for Honda is they're looking to see what happens down the line what happens if mark decides to leave if mark decides to retire if mark suddenly has no challenges left 
is that a factor that made them think, well, let's bring Paul in? Paul might be the same age as Mark, but he's going to have the hunger to try and make sure he's able to win. And when you look at Paul coming into the team, it's similar to what we've seen in the Superbike paddock with Alex Lowe's going to Kawasaki, where they want to bring in a younger rider or you know a rider that hasn't had the success that maybe they could have and just have them to breathe them for a couple of years and then get the most out of them if Mark Marquez or Johnny Ray decides to retire. So it's an interesting decision process that's gone into all this by Honda and their goal clearly has been to make sure they've got potentially the best rider on their bikes in a couple of years and that's where the decision on Cal becomes a little bit easier for them to make as well probably. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We all know that it's a, it's a ruthless game, is uh, MotoGP superbike racing as well at times. And uh, Cal, I think over the last five years, you would say in that time, he's, he's definitely been the, the, the fastest and best satellite rider, obviously scoring uh, those three race wins and uh, countless other podiums, podium each year since 2015, at least one. Um, it's a pretty, pretty good record. And that Honda that he's been riding clearly hasn't always been uh, such a good bike. Yeah, and I think if you were to have sat down at Misano in 2014 and said that this is what we'd have over the next five seasons from Crutchlow, considering at that stage he was on the Ducati, he was really struggling, you know, you certainly wouldn't have thought that this would be the five years that he would have had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Cal obviously has a pretty extensive experience in, uh, in MotoGP, having ridden Yamaha's M1, at one point uh, Ducati Desmond Sedici, GP14, and then five years with uh, Honda's RC213V, uh, as well as having pretty good experience on super sport machinery, super bike machinery as well. Um, speaking to some people that have worked with Cal in terms of crew chiefs or, or technicians in the past, uh, he is spoken very highly of in terms of uh, his feedback, his, uh, his development ability, and he's always maintained that Honda has really valued his input into the RC213V because they know that, uh, well, Mark Marquez is a, a once-in-a-generation rider and you can't always use him as, as a proper benchmark for gauging just how good and competitive a bike is to pretty much any other rider. Um, so feasibly, Cal should be a bit of a bit of a good pick for, well, there's not many seats left on this uh, MotoGP 2021 grid, Steve, but uh, say he were to go to Aprilia, I mean, that would be a bit of a catch for them. Yeah, certainly would. And I think that's where it becomes interesting to see whether or not the progress that Aprilia have made over the winter is actually real progress. And by real progress, I don't mean the bike is suddenly performing at a MotoGP level. It's where instead of battling for a couple of points paying positions, where suddenly they're battling for a top six. And that's the kind of step that they need to make. But how realistic is it for them to make a step like that, Neil? Because they're coming from so far back. They're coming from such dysfunction over the last few years. And I think that's where it becomes really difficult for them, even if they bring Cal in, even if they've made progress with the bike they still have to jump in front of the progress of Yamaha Ducati and Honda which I don't really see never mind Suzuki as well so I don't really see how even with Ducati making this step or sorry Aprilia making this step forward that they're actually going to see a tangible improvement in their results as well it's going to be it's going to be really interesting if it is a Cal that are on the bike next year 
you know, Cal's made some comments this week saying that uh, Aprilia could be an option that interests him. Uh, Carmelo Espaleta, also in an interview with uh, Oriol Puigdemont from motorsport.com, was saying that uh, it's obviously in Dorna's interest to make sure that Cal's on the grid in 2021. Uh, what with um, the uh, the contracts that they have with BT Sport, pretty major player when it comes to uh, TV revenue that uh, Dorna is pretty dependent upon. Um Cal and Aprilia, you talked there a little bit about the uh, the step that Aprilia has to make, Steve. Also, when you think back to some of the other British riders that have uh, been at Aprilia in recent times, I mean, let's not uh, beat about the bush here, but it hasn't always been that great. I'm thinking San Lowe's and Scott Redden, both of those years that uh, those particular riders had were, were nothing short of disastrous. Um, what what would be different if, if Cal went there, do you think? Well, that's the million-dollar question. What would be different? Like we're hearing an awful lot that uh, Rivoli's made these huge changes within the structure of the team. That uh, Albaciano is just looking at now just as a technical role, as opposed to his leadership role that he had in the past. That's going to make a huge difference potentially. But again, that's that word potential. Is it a guarantee that we're going to see this huge improvement, this big step up the grid? And I don't think there's any guarantee for that. And I think that. Uh, it will be better with Crutchlow on the bike because he will be a step up from anyone else they can have. But it doesn't mean that they're suddenly going to be incredibly competitive again. I think when you look at Aprilia, the best example you can see of just how dysfunctional it was is looking at Scott Redding, where Redding lost his motivation. He lost his his love of what it takes to be a Grand Prix rider. And then suddenly he went to BSB and now he's in World Superbikes. And he's losing weight recently. And he said that, you know, at Aprilia, he was lighter than he is now, but he couldn't see any benefit to being lighter. Whereas now he can see the benefit to all that hard work. He can see why you should do all these things. And I think that's what Aprilia are fighting against. It's it's trying to make sure that everyone can actually be at their best. Everyone can get good results because at the end of the day, is there a big difference between finishing 12th and finishing 14th for a rider like Cal Crutchlow at the end of his career there isn't but there's a big difference between being able to fight inside the top six and being able to fight for points which is what Aprilia have been doing over the last few years yeah it's interesting also when you think back to uh, Scott Redding's year I mean he was uh, still being talked off in uh, Aprilia circles certainly by Albesiano as a, as a possible test rider in 2019 when Scott was racing for them in 2018 and that was still a possibility up until the Red Bull ring. And if you remember, it was there that Scott had a, a really bad race. Um, lots of things were going wrong on the bike. And he came out afterwards and just read the Riot Act. Basically, he said exactly what was on his mind. Um, was not in any way diplomatic about it. And I think he admitted that he later regretted that. But uh, it's safe to say that that was not taken well by uh, Albesiano and those at the Aprilia factory. And... Uh, Obviously, Scott, I think, had to pay quite a hefty fine for that, um, for those comments. But also, just thinking back, Cal's history in, in MotoGP, you know, the, the kind of character, he's quite an outspoken character, obviously. Um, you were working in MotoGP in 2014 when he moved to Ducati, and that was a, a year that didn't start off so well. Ducati didn't have a great bike that year. Um, I mean, Cal calls it as he sees it, right? Like, he's not... He's not really a guy that puts a, a filter in front of things for the most part. And that, I think, might be interesting to see how that would play out if he did go to Aprilia. 
Yeah, and that's where Aprilia are, are different now, potentially, with Rivoli in charge. And I think someone like Cal, like you say there, that he says what he thinks and he doesn't have a filter. Cal is probably the smartest rider I've ever seen in terms of being able to manage the media, in terms of being able to control a story, in terms of being able to dictate what's going to be reported. So the reason that Cal speaks out a lot is because he can see a benefit from it. Now, sometimes that can backfire on him where he's just, he's too pointed. But I think Crutchlow, he can manage a situation. And also, he just needs to make sure that uh, he's able to manage whatever fines he gets and uh, that they're not uh, too extortionate. As you said, Scott's ones were, were pretty hefty. And, uh, you know, that'll keep some riders in line. I'm not sure it'll keep Cal in line. <laughs> yeah, and Aprilia, obviously, um, you look back to their testing performances at the start of this year um, when they brought out the new 2020 RSGP for the first time at Sepang. Alicia Spargaro had a great, great test at Sepang, had a decent test in Qatar. Um, there were real, real positives in terms of his, his pace in Sepang and also his, his outright speed. I think he was up there in the top three, top four riders in terms of pace. However, they were still having issues with um, endurance, how far that bike could run at 100%. And that was still an issue that they were having at the Qatar test. And you just think, I mean, this is a, this has been an issue that Aprilia has had to has had to fight with for, for years since they came back in a, in a big way into MotoGP. Um, that's another thing, you know, how, how does Cal react if his bike has a couple of issues for, let's say, two races in the first five rounds, I mean, that's uh, that's another thing that would be interesting to see. Well, I think it's it, it's the same story with every team all the time. You know, will Ducati ever make a bike that turns? Will Honda be able to, to sort out their bike? Will Yamaha be able to find that little bit more top speed? You know, every manufacturer seems to have a fatal flaw. And it's up to Aprilia to put the systems in place to at least minimize the kind of issues that they've had over the last few years. And then suddenly you can start to then move forward from it. The big thing for them is just going to be, you know, can they make the step of the bike? Whatever about any other issues, it's just how close can they actually be in terms of outright performance? Because that would be enough to make them think there's hope for the future. The same way as Ducati, if you look at them from 14 when they brought in the GP 14.2 halfway through the season and suddenly that made a step forward then 15 another step forward 16 17 18 19 they've been able able to make incremental steps but you can only make those incremental steps because whenever you've got the same design philosophy there's always that maximum that you can design to and just that law of diminishing returns comes in and it's harder and harder to find those improvements yeah, absolutely. Um, if we're looking at, at you know the positives in in the potential move, I mean, Cal, uh, I think has has done quite a remarkable job in the last five years. If if you think about how difficult Honda is to ride, um, and okay, he's he's known for being quite an ag- aggressive rider, but considering he had spent most of his MotoGP career before two thousand and fifteen on Yamaha's M one, I mean, Honda's bike couldn't really be further from that if it if it tried you know it's just a, the polar opposite in terms of of mechanics and how it works and, and how it needs to be ridden and uh, okay he had a pretty patchy first year in 2015 but by the summer of 2016 i mean he was suddenly a kind of podium regular regularly fighting at the front of races 
Um, and the Aprilia, by all accounts, is quite a, quite a difficult bike and um, needs to be ridden very specifically. Um, Cal has proved that he can do that uh, with the MotoGP machine. Um, he also brings a lot of of, uh, of experience. He's been one of Honda's uh, biggest testing assets for the last couple of seasons, and um, that'll obviously that would be a, a big thing for Aprilia if he were to go there. Um, and Alicia Spargo did show at the start of this year that from last year to this year's machine, it is night and day. I mean, it is a big, big improvement. And if they can just get the reliability sorted out, you do feel that this is a bike that could, at certain rounds, be knocking on the door of the top six. Yeah, and I think that's what's going to be interesting. It's like I said earlier on, until they actually make that step, it's all just newspaper talk. You know, it's all potential. It's all what could happen with that bike. It's what could be attractive for a rider and a team. And and that's where, like, right now in the middle of the lockdown, Aprilia gets very attractive for a lot of riders. But after two rounds in Jerez, Bruno and Austria, if that bike's not knocking on the door of the top six, like you said, Neil, that bike's not attractive to anyone. So, you know, for a rider like Cal, does he sign his deal now? whenever it's talk of potential or does he wait and see what the Aprilia actually does whenever we get racing in a ref? Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, Steve, because uh, we've, we've given it quite a lot of attention in previous podcasts, but the Andrea De Vizioso, Ducati situation continues to, uh, to uh, interest us, let's say, uh, in a very uh, diplomatic way um, because obviously there's still been no confirmation there. And in a recent interview with uh, MotoGP.com's podcast, his manager, Simone Ballastella, was floating some interesting ideas about possibilities of 2001, 2021 and what might happen. Yeah, he was floating idle threats is the only thing that I can say about that because Davi is 34 years old. He'll be 35 at the end of March next year. For his manager to say that Davi is willing to sit out next year to then get the ride that he wants a year later or the contract that he wants a year later is ludicrous because a year later Davi is 36 and he sat on a MotoGP grid for let's say 10 times in the previous two years. Now if you're any manufacturer are you going to be interested in hiring Davi for the kind of money that he wants in those circumstances? I don't think any leading manufacturer would be interested. Davi, his best option to win is with Ducati. Ducati's best option to win is with Davi. They need to find a solution that allows both of them to stay where they are. Now, the problem for them is, and I've heard that this is the same in the Boral Superbike team, is that Ducati, due to the shutdowns, due to lack of sales, due to all of the implications of the coronavirus lockdowns, they don't have the budget right now to be able to allocate towards the wages for a Davi or you know Chaz Davis and World Superbikes or someone else. So suddenly the offer that they can make is in the eyes of the rider, it's for sweet F all. But in terms of what Ducati are actually able to allocate, that might actually be the limit. And it seems like a very similar situation to what Yamaha got themselves in to with Michael Vandermark. It could also be a factor in why we're not seeing Yamaha confirm Valentino Rossi at uh, the Petronas team. It could be that, you know, Yamaha just don't have that budget right now because of all these shutdowns. Can they afford to have Rossi and his entourage? Can they afford all those contracts? And all those things cause a delay. 
Now, most of this is just, it's on paddock hearsay and different rumors that you're hearing, but it all adds up that it's just harder and harder for those manufacturers to find a budget right here or right now. In a year's time, that can be very different. But right now, I think that's what's causing the delay. And for Davi, he kind of has to stick to his guns because he wants to get paid. He's finished second in the world the last three years. He shouldn't be undervalued by Ducati. But it's all about what they can actually offer him. Yeah, yeah. We saw an interview with uh, Chicho Lorenzo, uh, Jorge's rather outspoken father. And he was uh, intimating that, uh, well, he wasn't intimating, he was straight up saying that uh, Jorge had been in some negotiations with Ducati. I, I mean, this, this can't really happen, can it? Well, it's, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 8th of July, and Fernando Alonso has just been confirmed as returning to Formula One. You know, anything can happen. But for me, I don't really understand the whole Lorenzo backed Ducati stuff because, like, fair enough, Jorge had his bad injuries at the end of his second year with Ducati. But you're basing everything on a run of a couple of rounds where the Ducati was very good as well. Three or four rounds in a row, Lorenzo looked to be back on form. But there were three or four tracks where the Ducati always goes well. So are we focusing on a very small sample size with Lorenzo at Ducati and thinking, oh, this could all work again for him? Or is it a little bit unrealistic? And, you know, I know that obviously the relationship between him and Gigi has always been very strong. But is that enough for Ducati to bring Lorenzo back? And is Lorenzo going to be willing to ride for whatever Ducati can offer him as well? Yeah, and does Lorenzo, does he have that absolute burning desire, motivation to come back and uh, be the rider that he once was. I mean, he might think he he has it. He might convince himself he has it, but I'm not exactly sure that he, he does have it. You know, and, and to come back on the Ducati, it'd be different if he was coming back full time on the Yamaha, for example. It's not just going to be a case of him turning up, jumping on it and, and being super fast. It's going to take work and work and effort and lots of tough times and some soul searching and, you know, everything that he had to go through at the start of 2018. It was so painful and looked like it was gnawing away his soul for him to come back and get that win at Mugello. I mean, does he have it in him to come back and go through that whole thing again? I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. Yeah, and I'm in 100% the same boat. I'd love to see it happen. We all want to see Lorenzo back. We want to see him on a good bike. You want to see him at the front. But MotoGP is so specialized right now. Like Everyone is at such a limit that it's so difficult in one year or even two years to change bikes and be competitive, to be right at the front. And then you also have to look at it that over the two years together with Davi, Davi was just better than him. And then you go to be Mark Marquez's teammate and Mark is just flat out better than you as well. Like for a young Lorenzo, whenever he came to MotoGP, he was up against Rossi and he was just as fast as Rossi right from the start of his MotoGP career. He was very much a rough diamond, but he was just as fast as him and basically ended up pushing Rossi out of Yamaha, ended up beating him again to another world championship in 2015. Like the young Lorenzo would view the challenge of Ducati as being, that's fine, I can go and do that again. But the older Lorenzo, the one that's been beaten into place by Davi and Mark for three seasons, it would be a huge, huge task to come back in and find the motivation needed to be able to get back to the front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. But these rumors do persist and uh, you do wonder whether he's uh, being used as something of a pawn um, by Ducati to, to basically remind Davizio so that, hey, you know, we do have options elsewhere. It might not be uh, as reliable an option as you, but uh, hey, this guy's got a hell of a lot more world championships than you have. And, uh, you know, we, we, we won't uh, be held to ransom. But uh, yeah, this one will run and run. Uh, Paolo Chiabari has said that uh, they'll start negotiating again after the first races. So uh, I'm sure this will be uh, hanging above Davizioso and Ducati as we go through the first two races of the year at, uh, at Jerez. So uh, to be continued, I feel. Um, now, Steve, obviously you're over in uh, Montmelo, about, uh, I'm not sure, 40, 50 kilometers away from where I am at the moment. Uh, you've been watching some motorbikes today, which is uh, not something you've been able to say for the last uh, four months. Uh, first of all, how was it up at uh, the circuit of Barcelona? Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was great to be back and see bikes on track and be able to see what changes people have made. Also, it's always interesting whenever you go to a new track, and this is a new track for superbikes. You know, a handful of riders have ridden here, but most of them aren't like Scott Redding or Alvaro Bautista with recent experience. You're looking at Michael Vandermark. He was here 10 years ago. Chaz Davis was here probably 15 years ago on a 250. Eugene Laverty was here, obviously, whenever he was a MotoGP rider a few years ago. But there's not an awful lot of them that have any experience here. And if they do, it's like top rack on a Red Bull rookie's bike or you know, other guys on a 125. So they've all had to really learn the track. And it was interesting as the day progressed to see just subtle differences that people were making in terms of their lines or their approaches to different sections to just get the most out of the bike. So there was a lot to be able to keep an eye on during today's test. But I'd say day two on Thursday will probably be the interesting one because that's whenever we'll see a lot of riders try and make a big step, a lot of long runs to be done. I think that uh, in the heat, for tomorrow, that's going to be really important because it's very warm here today. It's going to be even warmer when we get to Hereth. Like right now, the temperatures down in Hereth are about 37 degrees and it's, you know, 27, 28 degrees here in Barcelona. So it's going to be absolutely crucial to make sure you're able to have that long pace, that consistency whenever we go to Hereth and Portimao for the first couple of rounds. Yeah, excuse that uh, loud groaning noise that you just heard. Whenever Steve mentioned 37, 38 degrees, I couldn't really contain it within myself, thinking of all those joys that we've got to look forward to next week. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly um, quite something. Um, the Super White guys obviously had a bit of a run out at uh, Mizano uh, at, at a test, which... Uh, Saw some uh, MotoGP machines, also some uh, some World Superbikes. Uh, that was a few weeks ago. Um, from the time she's the or the the timing screens that you were sending me earlier, Steve, it looked like Scott Redding was really quick. Johnny Ray, unsurprisingly, was really quick. Top Rank and Alex Lowe's were up there as well. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of the the guys that we've we've come to expect to be at the front of World Superbikes this year, right? That were that were there. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't any real shocks. I, I'm, it's a little bit disappointing that uh, Michael Ruben Rinaldi is here, but only on a road bike. His Go 11 team did a really good job at the Mizano test. He was looked very competitive. I would have been quite interested to see what he could do here in Montmelo on his superbike. But it's always interesting whenever you see a world-class rider out in a bike still with the lights on it. So it's literally come straight from the showroom. So uh, for Rinaldi, it'll be interesting to see how he does in those first couple of rounds because... He's shown flashes of his potential. This is a guy that went toe-to-toe with Top Rack for the Stock 600 and the Stock 1000 title. And he's been able to show flashes of what he can do on a superbike, but he's not been able to do it consistently. 
And maybe now he's able to make that step. And if he's able to make that step in Hareth and Portmao, he might be able to parlay that into a good offer from Ducati for next year even. But it's a big ask for him because he's been so inconsistent over the last few years. But if he's able to make a step, he could make a splash over these couple of rounds. I think that, um, like you said, Neil, obviously Redding's looking very competitive. He should look very competitive. He's got... 200 Grand Prix starts. He's a BSB champion. He knows the bike. He knows the tires. You know, there's nothing that Scott Redding's done so far this year that surprises anyone. And now it's just about whether or not he can win a race over the course of the next few rounds. I personally think he'll win in Jerez because he knows the track. The Ducati goes very well there. It runs very well in the hot conditions. So I think Scott's going to easily win a race in the first round after the restart. And then it's all about what he's able to do to manage those expectations, what he's able to do to make sure that he's consistently able to to win and on his bad days do what he did in Phillip Island, come away with three podiums. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, just looking at the times that you sent from today, Steve, uh, Loris Baz was up there. He was the quickest of the Yamahas. Um, if we were to base what's going to happen in Jerez on the testing that we've seen so far, I mean, is it likely to be what we what we witnessed at uh, Phillip Island or, or do you think it's going to be solely between Reading and Ray? Much as I would love to say that we're going to have a repeat of Phillip Island, Phillip Island was such a phenomenal weekend that you couldn't possibly say we're going to have the same where all of the bikes were really competitive. I think what's going to happen through the course of this year is that, you know, there's a circuit like Phillip Island where everyone can be close, everyone can race together. I think most circuits we're going to have it where there's going to be two or three manufacturers that are very competitive at the front. And that could be, obviously, Kawasaki and Ducati are going to be fast everywhere. But at other circuits, the Yamaha will be the close one. Other circuits, it could be the Honda and then the BMW as well. So I think it's going to be really important to, on your good days for those manufacturers to make sure you can really profit from them, do what Toprak did in Phillip Island, win a race and uh, be able to make sure you come away with good podiums in, in, in the other round, races from that round. I think Baz looks very competitive. He's looked great on that Tenkati all the way through the winter. And I think he looks like a rider that also knows that he's in the shop window. He can get a factory Yamaha contract. So he's really motivated. We know that bike works well in the heat at uh, Hareth. Michael Vandermark won last year. So Baz is certainly going to think he's going to have an opportunity to do well there uh, in a couple of weeks' time. I think when you look a little bit further down the order... You know, you'd still expect that uh, like people like Vandermark, Chaz Davis, they're not great testers. We don't tend to see them put in, you know, a great lap time for them. But uh, both of them looked pretty solid today out in track. Both of them were pretty happy afterwards. I think it's all just about being able to make sure that they're able to get themselves into that right window for the opening round in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just also one thing that stands out is that uh, Alvaro Bautista was up there in fifth position. Now, I know that uh, you were were one of uh, Bautista's biggest critics in the second half of last year, Steve. Um, also, you weren't so sure that he was really that riding that well at Phillip Island to the first race of the year. Obviously, it's quite a big jump going from uh, Ducati's uh, superbike that he rode last year to Honda's brand new race of this year, a machine that still needs a lot of development. But Batista up there inside the top five uh, on Wednesday afternoon, it's the first day of testing him on Melo. Um, has the Honda made uh, had quite noticeable gains since Phillip Island? It's hard to know because Leon Haslam had a massive crash today, so we didn't really get to see the full potential of that bike. 
I think Bautista, as the test wore on, as the day went on, he looked a little bit more comfortable on the bike. He looked a little bit better. Coming through turn three, he looked very good. But there were other sections where he didn't look as comfortable into the heavy braking zones, into turn one, for instance. He didn't look to be braking as deep. He didn't look to be able to carry that confidence of a lot of other riders. So that's still the issue for him. And I think Phillip Island, for me, masked a lot of those problems because Phillip Island becomes a, a tyre management race. And I think that over the course of the, the two-day test in Phillip Island and then three days of racing, he looked good, but I don't think he looked top five good like he finished in, race, in, in the races in Phillip Island. And I think when we get back racing in Hareth, he'll have a good advantage in Hareth because he doesn't use his tyres an awful lot. It's going to be very hot, but it's going to be up to him to really make that step. And I think Phillip Island, uh, uh, Phillip Island covers the cracks for an awful lot of people. And it's only whenever we get to Hareth that we'll really see a bit of a picture developing of what we can expect. And then by the time we get to Portimao a week later, that's whenever the, the picture really is starting to become set. Okay. And just a final question about uh, testing so far, Steve. You've mentioned that Baz looks in, in, in pretty good shape. He's super motivated, uh, considering there's uh, one of those seats at the Yamaha uh, squad open for next year. Um, can you see any other potential surprises going into the first World Superbike race of the year? Well, I, personally, I don't think it would be a surprise if, if Baz and Tenkade were to be able to come away with podiums and challenge for a win because they've been able to have that competitiveness all the way through the winter. I think last year, a lot of their competitiveness was kind of not really to the fore because of you know crashes and qualifying or different things like that for Baz. And I think that uh, maybe they're now ready to actually really show all their potential. I think BMW could spring some surprises, but I don't think their, their package is strong enough yet over a single lap. I think they're coming from the pack if they're able to manage the tires. Um, but, you know, I think it really does come down to the same guys that you would expect. The factory Yamahas and Baz, and then your factory Kawasaki and Ducati riders. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's uh, certainly pretty interesting stuff, Steve. And uh, saw some of your photos uh, that you were taking up at Montmelo today. Great work indeed. And, uh, well... Just from your comments, uh, certainly whetted the appetite as uh, Harris edges ever closer. That pretty much brings us uh, to the end of our discussion for uh, today's edition of the Panic Pass podcast. Um, as ever, we'll be back again next week uh, with uh, the definitive Grand Prix preview, the first proper MotoGP round of 2020 coming to you from Jerez in Andalusia and then uh, well it'll be pretty much straight racing every weekend from there on in either MotoGP World Superbike coming at you thick and fast uh, through this uh, middle part of uh, 2020 thank goodness after all that um, all those months of uh, of inactivity it's great to be uh, looking at a calendar filled with events coming up on the horizon uh, Steve thank you very much for uh, your participation today. A pleasure as always speaking to you. Yeah, always fun to chat about bikes, Neil. And uh, at least from next week, we're able to chat about racing as well. So that's going to be very exciting. Absolutely. Thanks to David Emmett. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, David Emmett isn't here today, uh, but he will hopefully be back joining us again next week on the Paddy Pass podcast. And thank you, of course, to you, dear listener, as always, uh, for coming back, listening to our show. If uh, you do listen to us on a 
Apple podcast listening device, uh, leave us a, a review if you could, because it really greatly helps other people find the show. Uh, follow us on all our social media channels if you could. That's uh, facebook.com forward slash Panic Pass Podcast, Twitter at Panic Pass Pod, and we do have a Patreon page as well, contributing to that from as little as three dollars a month uh, well basically helps us uh, keep this show on the road keeps and helps us travel to races around the world because it is uh, well obviously an expensive business and uh, well when we're at races i feel that uh, our product is uh, all the better for it so until next week dear listener thank you again and uh, we'll speak to you soon oh yeah Oh, baby. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Liverpool 1-0 up after six minutes. <laughs>